going to an internship halfway across the country, leaving all the family and friends that I had ever known and doing that with a lump in my throat, but doing it nonetheless, put me on a trajectory where I wouldn't be sitting here today. I just had the most fascinating conversation with Lev, our Director of Financial Planning and Analysis. Lev told me about growing up in the Soviet Union. He also told me that his grandmother was a key inspiration in his life, a very touching story. And finally, he told me about a turning point in his life that set him on the trajectory he's on today. I think you're going to love hearing about Lev's story. Everyone has a story, and today I'm so excited to hear yours. Lev Skoken. Thank you. Great to be here, and uh, I'll speak to my best abilities about the easiest topic to speak about, which is yourself, because who knows oneself better than oneself. the person speaking? Exactly. Exactly. Not everyone would say that, so that's an interesting perspective you have. Some people don't like to talk about themselves. Some people you really have to draw out of a shell. But I haven't known you very long. How long have you worked here? Since April 18th, so seven weeks. Seven weeks. And I, and I intentionally didn't want to know too much about you because I want to discover it during this podcast. But one thing I do know about you, love, you like to eat. Yeah, I have a healthy appetite and I'm a calorie furnace. So you will generally see my desk covered in food of one variety or another. I can attest to that. Today I saw you with a giant donut sticking out of your mouth. I thought it was a cupcake. What was it, Shelly? Shelly brought it for me. Cinnabon? Yeah. Cinecroissant. Uh, one, one of these wonderful splices of food that can only be created in the United States, particularly in the Midwest. Nowhere else. And it's it's something to be experienced. It's something to be enjoyed. <laughs> I, I know I certainly did. I I think I wolfed it down in, in roughly 45 seconds, and I had to contemplate whether I wanted to breathe or eat more of it at a few points. So when you say you're a calorie furnace, tell me about that. Uh, it's, I just I have a really fast metabolism. I go through 3,200 to 4,500 calories a day, depending on how much I'm moving. And so I kind of just burn a ton of food. I have a very regimented schedule for when I eat, where I open up an eating window that's four to eight hours long. Uh, eat as much as I possibly can, and then I stop very abruptly. So you do the intermittent fasting? Precisely. Were you doing it before it was intermittent fasting? Uh, culturally, because I'm from the Soviet Union, that's it was how I had grown up, where you would eat maybe a big breakfast and a lunch, and then you stop, and you don't really do dinner, or you do lunch and a really big dinner, and then you kind of go to bed. You grew up in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Uh, I caught the tail end of it. Uh, so I got to, the most that I remember of it is when it was falling apart. And then I ended up in what is modern day Ukraine, uh, first in the city of Kiev, and then in a town called Vishenki, which was on the outside of kind of past the suburbs of Kiev. Uh, we were driven there just because there was kind of a consumer goods crisis. And when I say consumer goods, I don't mean flat screen TVs. I mean more like bread. So a lot of people from the cities went to the countryside. You had this reverse urbanization going on where people would go to the countryside and take something that had been a, a heath, just a flat field with a little bit of grass, plow it, and now you have potatoes. 
Uh, so we ended up there. Ultimately, it didn't look like things were going to be looking up anytime soon. So we caught a night train to Moscow. We went to the United States Embassy. We were uh, greeted with kind of unusually open arms. Uh, we went, explained our situation, uh, and they gave us refugee status. And they told us, you know, you can you can come to the United States. We we ended up moving to New York City, where my uncle was already uh, there. He had defected in the early '90s, right towards the end of the collapse. So. He met us here, and uh, the rest is kind of history. Grew up in New York, moved out here, moved back to New York, moved back here, moved to Germany, moved to Ohio, and then came back here, got married, kids. Now I'm not going anywhere. Wow. So tell me, how old were you uh, when you moved to the U.S.? I think I was just, I was almost seven. So I was like six, six and 11 months. Did you speak English? A little bit. So it was it was a kind of weird situation where at that point I was learning English as my fourth language, because when it was the Soviet Union, you have to speak Russian. If you come to school and you speak something different, they get kind of mad at you. But then it turns into Ukraine and you're expected to learn Ukrainian. So now you're learning this. My father was really big on reading the Old Testament at the time. So he said, we're going to read it in Hebrew. You're going to learn Hebrew with me. We're not losing anything in translation. And then when we were kind of abruptly moving to the United States, it wasn't something that we had planned for years. It was just that the opportunity kind of opened up rather suddenly. So I learned the alphabet a few words. And my first day of school, I couldn't speak to anybody. I, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, the teacher's looking at me saying stuff. I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening here. And I'm just kind of sitting at a desk wondering what's, what's happening. And uh, slowly, probably six months later, I was speaking English pretty well because it's easy to learn as a kid. That is that is amazing. Like that is a story not many people have to tell. So tell me, how did that shape you as to who you are today? Uh, it made it made learning languages a lot easier. <laughs> uh, just just because after you after the first three, uh, you kind of you stop thinking of it in terms of I'm going to have a conversation and I'm going to do these exercises in a textbook. And you already know what language kind of consists of, where you will say, this is definite articles, indefinite articles, verbs, conjugations, tenses, nouns, and you start filling in those individual boxes. And so languages get very easy. So Spanish in high school, much easier. Italian college, oh, cake. How many languages do you speak today? I can get by, if you drop me uh, anywhere on the planet, about eight. That's impressive. Do you use that language skill in your everyday life? So, yes, because when I speak to my different family members, my grandmother speaks Russian. My mom speaks Ukrainian. My dad will speak a mix of all of the above. Uh, my wife is Greek, so I will speak Greek to her family on a fairly regular basis. I, I don't really use Hebrew anymore, although when I lived in Germany, it was in the, uh, in the headquarters for a corporation for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And we did a little bit of business with Israel, so I would get to speak a little bit of Hebrew there. And Italian too, because the Italian affiliate didn't speak that much English. The only language I was really missing was French, and I never learned French. Ah, c'est la vie. Such is life, indeed. Yes. So let's let's go back to you and your family and your current situation. So you said you're here in Chicago. You're here to stay. Mm -hmm. You like it here in Chicago. You're putting roots down. Tell me about your family. Oh, so I, I have my wife. Her name is Kate. I have two twin daughters that are 19 months old uh, in that 
perfect, perfect, really adorable toddler face before the terrible twos, but after they can walk around and they know what a hug is and they, they're excited <laughs> to see you. So really the, the best time. Uh, and my in-laws live about six doors down from us, so they watch our kids on a regular basis. We're a pretty tight-knit family. My parents and my grandmother are still in New York City, so I periodically will fly out and visit them, but that's that's about all of us that are here. Twin daughters. Identical. The rarest kind of twins. Does that run in your family? No, identical twins are completely chance. Fraternal twins can be genetic, but identical twins, just it just means that the egg split. That's it. And that is three in 1,000 pregnancies. How cool is that? Unbelievable. Yeah, it's a, it's a great two-for-one deal, and uh, and they're super adorable. Like I, have, I mean, daughters, super cute. Yes, I, I can attest to that. I have two of my own. There not, you go. Not twins. So when you, when you think about your life here and the things that we all take for granted, you have a different appreci appreciation for what life is like in other parts of the world, given how you grew up. Oh, absolutely. And uh, quite honestly, just the amount of things that were mind-blowing when adjusting to moving to the United States were, were things that nobody would ever think of. For example, we buy a TV and we turn on it's in color. That's amazing to me. Mm -hmm. And then there's this little box with numbers and we're looking at it like, what is, what is this thing? And there's a place to put in batteries. And you press the buttons and the number comes up there and you realize this box controls the TV. It's a remote control. We'd never seen that before. Couldn't fathom that you could have something that's wireless. We, you know, when we saw cell phones, that blew our mind because the last three years that we were living in, in Ukraine, we were in this town where there is one phone for 10,000 people and it's in the post office. Wow. So just, just to put it into perspective, as shocking as this was to me as a child for my grandmother who had lived, uh, you know, since the times of Stalin. Uh, the first week that we were here, we had gotten an apartment on Church Avenue in Brooklyn, and we got a phone call from the corner store saying, hey, uh, this woman gave us this number. Uh, she's elderly. She's not well. And we come down there, and she's physically ill because the corner store has every type of ice cream, coffee, <laughs> paper towels, toilet paper, and all these, all these products that, like, we didn't have chocolate ice cream. We would sometimes, <laughs> every few years, see vanilla ice cream. Mm -hmm. If you got bananas, you couldn't buy bananas. The word is is the stat, which means it's like to obtain bananas. You had to know somebody to get bananas because so it's just it's the abundance, the availability of things, inventions that we could never fathom. The cars that I mean, we bought a, a 1989 Buick Sabre and to us that was better than any Lada that you could buy in the Soviet Union. So do you think that makes you a happier, more grateful person? Do you appreciate the little things? Yeah. Yeah, and I, it, it makes me really appreciate just how much easier my life is uh, when compared to prior generations. And, and every subsequent generation going back, as far as we can trace it, probably four or five generations back, has had it easier and easier and easier, and then my life is cake. Uh, comparatively, my biggest challenge is, you know, which flavor of ice cream I'm going to try at Oberweiss this weekend when I go to Schaumburg to, to pick up a pint. <laughs> uh, and it was just it was just not that easy. If you go back four generations ago, you have my great grandparents who had lived through two world wars and a civil war. Then you have their kids who lived through Stalin's time, this totalitarian regime where the wrong joke gets you uh, basically into legal trouble and you might not ever see the light of day again. You see my dad's time where there's no war and it's getting a little bit freer, but there's a consumer goods crisis. 
And then you get to my time where you, you go to America, your car drives itself. Uh, you know, you have video calls with people on the other side of the planet, things that you could never fathom uh, four generations ago. So if you had stayed in Ukraine, would you have been in the area that is currently under attack, part of the war? Uh, every area is part of the war. Uh, and that is, so yes, Kiev got bombed, the park where I used to go with my dad, uh, the park, it's called Park Frunze, that got bombed, the playground there got bombed, and there were families there that, that day. Uh, and I mean, I, so my wife and I, we had hired a nanny to help us. She was also from Ukraine. She was a, a fresh transplant. She was from Lviv, which is the westernmost part of Ukraine. It's right by Poland. And they make it a point to bomb that part as well, just to show them that there is no place where you're safe. So if you are in Ukraine, you are not in a place that is safe currently. Do you have any relatives that are in Ukraine today? Uh, no close relatives, perhaps some distant relatives in the villages, those of us that could left, uh, and unfortunately those that stayed just due to a lack of good medical care and nutrition, they, uh, they were older and they, they just, they're not, that area of the world is not exactly known for the longevity of its population. Hmm. Well, I'm so glad that you ended up here at CNG. Me too. <laughs> CNG and the United States. Yes. That's, yes. It's a pretty sweet deal. Yes. So tell me about what you do for us at CNG. So I'm the director of financial planning and analytics. Uh, and if you would imagine us as a car, uh, I look out the front windshield, Kim is driving the car. I'm describing what turns we're going to go down. <laughs> I'm writing the map. Uh, whereas accounting is probably sitting in the backseat and they're looking out the window going, look at all that stuff that we just passed back uh -huh. there and accurately yes. describing it and logging it. I love that. That is a great way to explain your job. Tells me you're a really fun person. Perhaps. I'll, I'll <laughs> leave that to other people to determine. Wow. <laughs> Who's had the most influence in your life? My grandmother from my father's side. Tell me about that. So when we had moved here, uh, she essentially took over raising me. And she is she's an old school Soviet aristocrat. So every every major classical musician that you can think of, if they did a tour in the Soviet Union, she would have been at that show. And so she was at a very high level of culture, very high level of education in a country where 10% of the population get a college degree. She had a master's degree in economics. Uh, she was the one that said you should you should go into finance just just to give you an idea of how much he had steered my life and when my parents were were working so that we could kind of make make ends meet uh, she instead of being retired and just taking it easy she went to the next level and she would cook my meals pick me up from school check my homework uh, so i was doing english at like the normal level when I was in second grade, but I was doing mathematics at a 10th grade level because she would sit there and say, oh, come, look at the arithmetic. No, we're doing trigonometry. We're going to start on calculus. Why don't you know your multiplication tables? Uh, and then she would take it a further step up as if that wasn't enough. And she would make sure to try to get me exposure to high culture. So for example, um, she would take me to the ballet uh, and we didn't have a ton of money. So uh, she would go to community college to learn English during the day. And at the end of her lesson, she would go out and there'd be a row of pay phones. Was, this was Brooklyn College. And she would pull the, the little tab to see if there was any change left over. And she would save 
all that changed until she had like 40 bucks. And then we would get nosebleed seats to see the Nutcracker at Carnegie Hall. Wow. That yeah. is fascinating. Yeah. What an inspiration. Yeah. She was, that woman is tough and she's, she's still alive. She's still in, in New York, uh, in her mm -hmm. apartment. How old is she? 84. How often do you get to see her? I try to go every uh, three to six months. She must be very proud of you. I, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, Soviets are not as as open mm. uh, as far as, as saying that, you know, I'm very proud of you. I love you. But if they're not saying anything about how your achievements are insufficient, the, the silence, like no news is usually good news. That means they're satisfied. Mm -hmm. You've lived up to expectations and they can leave you alone to go make your own way in the world. Yeah. That stoic personality. Precisely. I know it. Yes. I have relatives like that as well. But, you know, to have someone like that, that pushed you and shaped you, that's, that's a great thing to have. Not oh, yeah. everyone so. has that in their life. Uh, Lev, your story's fascinating to me. Thank you. I, uh, I'm wondering, what, what age are you today? 34. 34. You're still young. You have so much of your life in front of you. Was there a, was there a turning point in your life, a pivotal moment when you feel like this really put me on the trajectory that I'm on today? Was there a decision you made or, you know, uh, uh, an attitude you have that brought you to where you are today? Yes. I, I think that the 2011 hiring season Mm -hmm. changed my entire life because at that time we were still kind of kind of in the 2007 recession there was not a ton of new jobs available there was this backlog of people that had been laid off in the 2007 recession that had more experience than me that were looking for jobs i was looking for a job as well all of my colleagues in college were looking for a job i was also working my way through college so i didn't have a ton of spare time to go out to all these job fairs and i'm just blasting out resumes uh continuously and having no luck whatsoever because I'm competing with people that had to go back to college and get their MBA and go back to get their masters. I'm competing with people that have 20 years of experience that got laid off that are going for senior analyst jobs and things along those lines. And I, I got into, I don't know, can I say the name of a different company? Well, why not? <laughs> I got into the Abbott Laboratories internship program through extensive networking and just a wild, wild Hail Mary of luck. And I think that's what put me on the current trajectory today. It was it was the fact that I think probably 90% of the people that I graduated with did not have a job lined up. And I had had an internship and I had gotten into the rotational program with Abbott Laboratories at a very interesting time when they were splitting up and I got to do all this entity splitting. I got to have six jobs in three years, which I think put me way ahead of everybody else in my class. And it's where I met my wife. We were interns together. So really that, that moment going to an internship halfway across the country, leaving all the family and friends that I had ever known and doing that with a lump in my throat, but doing it nonetheless, put me on a trajectory where I wouldn't be sitting here today. If I hadn't gone to the Abbott laboratories job, if I hadn't rotated through, I would have never gone and worked for Ryan Moore at a, at a different company called descendant, which means he would have never invited me to come here. And I would be off in New York doing something completely different with a totally different group of people. I might not even look the same uh, as, as I do right now. Yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows where you'd end up? Well, it's destiny that brought us here together today, yeah. love. Thank you for being my guest. I really appreciate talking to you. Now, yes. before we depart, I want to turn the table. 
Ask yeah. me any question you want to ask me. So as great as LinkedIn profiles are, uh, and <laughs> yours, yours is detailed, but nonetheless, it, it leaves out a lot of, well, what drives you? How did you end up here? You're, you're running this very successful company, uh, one that is profitable at a time when a lot of other businesses are, are simply not. So how did you end up here and what drives you forward to kind of keep going uh, when I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would that would take a bunch of, of money and then go relax on a beach somewhere, not keep going? Yes, that's not me. So I grew up in a family of 10 kids. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was number nine of 10 <laughs> and blue collar family. You know, my parents didn't have much. You know, we did have a TV and it was in color, but uh, we were living economically, you know, at the bottom of the country. And I learned from a really early age that if I wanted something in life, I was going to have to work hard for it. And my parents instilled in me a really, really strong work ethic. I started working when I was six years old. I would take a spoon out of the drawer in the kitchen and go to the neighbors and ask if I could dig up their dandelions for a penny. And that was for me, the first job I ever had. And so I had a, an aspiration to go into manufacturing because my mom worked in a factory and she would come home at the end of the day after raising 10 kids, really tired. And, and, and she told me that no women worked in the office. And at, at a young age, it made an impression on me. Like, why? Why can't it? And I, that was another thing about me. I was a very curious girl. I, I still am. I ask a lot of questions. And, and so that was my inspiration as to why I wanted to go into manufacturing and then put myself through college. I started out working in manufacturing, doing almost every job that there is to do from uh, materials planning. I actually started my career in finance. I was a plant supervisor. I was a quality engineer. I was a plant manager. And then I became a general manager and continued to move my way up. And in 2010, I was working for a company called Appleton Paper. And they wanted to sell the division I was running to private equity. And so they sold it to private equity in 2010 for $58 million. And over the last 13 years, we've built it into a company worth $4.3 billion. <laughs> so, huge. so it all, you know, it all have, again, it's, it's destiny, it's fate. It's that, that was my North star when I was a little girl that I was going to be a woman leader in manufacturing. I didn't know how tough the path would be. And it's been sad as challenges, but I think the one word you could use to describe me is resilient. If I set my mind to something, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to, nothing's going to knock me down. Were there any big setbacks along the way where you thought, oh man, maybe maybe this isn't as easy as I thought it would be. Maybe this <laughs> might stop me dead in my tracks. Many, many, many of those days. There were days I came home and told my husband, that's it. I'm done. I, I'm done. I don't need to put up with this anymore. But he would, my husband's always been my biggest supporter. He would always, you know, dust me off, push me back out, wouldn't let me quit. Uh, not that I would have anyway. But you know, you need someone like that in your life that's going to keep you going when times are tough. Absolutely. What do you What do you think are, the, are going to be the biggest challenges in the next couple of years, uh, just just for CNG itself? Well, you know, the bigger we get, the bigger the challenges, the bigger the opportunities. So I think for us, it's really one of the one of the reasons for our success is we've been very clear on who we are and who we aren't. Right. 
we do one thing and we're the best in the world at it. And that's make specialty film. And as you continue to scale and grow, you have to figure out how you're going to grow the company in a way that's going to continue to deliver the values. Um, it, it continue to allow us to deliver the value that we want to deliver and also the opportunity to live our values. It's a fantastic answer. I, I don't want to turn the table that much, uh, that much back on you. I know you got I want one to question. I got one, one more than I probably should yeah. have. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank this has been, me. this has been awesome. Lev Skoken. Yes. You inspire me. Thank you.